This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So we're going to do something a little bit new today. We'll do an interview instead of um, a talk. Now, the um, I'll just give a... When I, when, when I was a, a wee lad and growing up in Wollongong, there used to be this little bookstore called the... Uh, the Inner Light Bookstore. I don't know if Michael still remembers that. but um, And they used to have all these little fascinating books in it. There was all the Blavatsky books and the, you know, the Theosophical books. And on one, on one bookshelf there was these books by this guy called Gurdjieff. Who, and uh, In Search of the Miraculous was one of them by one of his students called Ospensky. And there were commentaries by a guy called Nichols who was a psychoanalyst who was also a student of Gurdjieff. And... Um, and also, back in those days, back in the senior high school days, there's this book that me and my friends read called The Outsider by Colin Wilson. Don't know if anybody ever read that when you... It was an interesting book. It was a bestseller back in the uh, maybe late 60s or 70s. Um, and in that book, The Outsider, he talked about the Gurdjieff work as well as um, other novelists like Herman Hesse and, and, and so on. So we were kind of like familiar with Gurdjieff and he was kind of like fascinating but um, never actually got into him in terms of practicing the teachings so much. Um, and, and also at the time there was Carlos Castaneda as well, I don't know if anybody remember him. Um, and so, um, um, so apart from some psychedelic adventures with Carlos, um, Gurdjieff was interesting but um, difficult to read and, um, and um, so I didn't really get into him very much, but he was always of some fascination. Um, then, in terms of the uh, Joko Beck's work, um, I know Joko must have read some Gurdjieff because she actually quotes him in one of her chapters um, in her second book on the, uh, which she talks about uh, the chapter on being of, I think it's called the pressures or something, where she talks about the chief feature. And also in her work, uh, there are some similarities with Gurdjieff. And there was one of uh, uh, Joko Beck's Dharma successors called Ezra Bider. And uh, we sometimes <coughs> recite Ezra's poem. Um, and um, Ezra was actually in a, in, in a Gurdjieff uh, group led by Robert de Rop, who, who wrote The Master Game, um, and where they practiced a Zen-style sitting meditation. And um, so that, that Gurdjieff work influenced Ezra Bider as well. So um, when I first met Elizabeth um, uh, a year or two ago now, um, I was quite interested to find out she had actually studied the Gurdjieff work. And um, so Elizabeth gave a talk last year, which was really well received. And I thought it'd be nice to, I initially invited her back to give another talk, but as it ended up, we decided we'd do an interview instead. And uh, so, Elizabeth, thank you for coming in again today. And, thank you. Uh, it's, and um, it's, it's good to have members of the Sangha who, you know, have different backgrounds and um, know that other members here have been influenced by other spiritual traditions and so on. And I think it makes a nice richness uh, to the Sangha. And um, so I was wondering, Elizabeth, if we could just start by giving like a, a, a brief biographical sketch again for those of you, for those people who didn't hear your initial talk about how you got involved with the work, and then I'll, we'll kick off after that with some questions. Okay. Um, basically, it's all my brother's fault. He was doing his national service in England, and he sent home from up to my mother, and he said, "Would you get me this book for me, please?" And anything my brother does was worth investigating because he was older than me, and I respected him. And he'd asked for the copy of In Search of the Miraculous. And I asked my mother to wait a little bit, if it was, give me time to just have a bit quick read before she sent it off. 
and it, as I say, I was just so taken with the. I thought that's what I want. That's 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 exactly what I'm after. But I was only 16 at the time, and the only group that was available was in London, which is 120 miles away. And I just couldn't go up to London at one evening every week to go to work with the groups. And I was very still very young. So I sort of I didn't put it on the back burner. I still bought some of his other books, and the books concerning the Gurdjieff work. But I still had it at the back of my mind that I, want, I definitely wanted to join a group. But it wasn't until after I came to Australia, um, and then when I got married, came to Australia, had children, and all sort of, it didn't, nothing really happened until about 1970. We were in Adelaide at the time, and there was a group advertised, and I thought, good, yes, I'll go on to that. Turns out he was a charlatan, but at least he got those of us together who were interested in the work, and we broke away from him, those who could recognise him for what he was. Another long story, but there's no need to go into that. Um, Perhaps, Elizabeth, if you just maybe just face me a little bit more, because it'll probably be... Oh, yeah. Yeah. OK, I'll talk to you then. Yeah, talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we started a group of our own, and we got in touch with Nikki Tereshenko, who's a Russian working with a group in Paris. His daughter lived in Adelaide, so he used to come and visit his daughter at least twice a year. So he would come to our little group and help us along. And gradually we got understood what it was. You can't really get it from the reading. It really, you have to actually talk to somebody and be with someone to have it actually passed on person to person. So anyway, he was great with Nikki, and he was great. And eventually we became a more of a coherent group. We began to understand what the work was all about. Um, then there was a group in Sydney started up with somebody from America, a teacher from America came over. And he was, to, he was, and whenever he was in in Sydney with the Sydney group, we, our group would go to go to Sydney to work with him. Occasionally, there'd be another guy from called um, Seniors Moment. Um, anyway, he'd come from California area, and he also worked with the Sydney group, and we went over there and worked with him. And whenever I went to England, I would um, want to see my family. I'd spend at least a week, or certainly a few days, with the big London group. Mm. So there's been lots of contact. My brother was in Canada, and he would belong to a big Gurdjieff group. So when I went to see him, I'd join in his group too. Mm. So, yeah, there's a sort of a factual background. Yeah. So when you came to Berlin or Coffs Harbour 10 years ago, you left the, the group in Adelaide? No, a bit yeah. of a long story there. But, but OK. Um, no, I moved up to this part of the world in 1996. Right. And there was no Gurdjieff group up here. I thought, do I start one? Because I, I had my own group in Adelaide. Um, but then I came across, I thought, why don't I have a look at Buddhism? There was a Buddhist group starting up, courtesy of the U3A in Coffs. So I went along to that and then started to sort of really seriously understand what Buddhism was all about. And it sort of morphed into the group in, in Coffs stayed going for quite a while. And I got in touch with the monk up at um, Upper Arara Valley. Burmese monk. Yes, and he'd been requested to teach Buddhism at the Karangi Primary School. But he said, no, 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 I'm not a teacher. Elizabeth will do that. So, so I ended up teaching Buddhism at Karangi Primary School for about five years. Mm. And then I moved to Port Bellington, and then it was a bit more difficult. Mm. That's great. So you got the, you know, apart from your understanding of the Gurdjieff teachings, you have some good understanding of Buddhism as well. So it'd be so. nice to try and integrate the two, especially. You've also read Joko's first book too, haven't yes, you? Yes, it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, okay. superb. So uh, he's a bit of a mysterious chapter, Gurdjieff. I mean, he was born in Armenia, um, and um, some people refer to him as a Sufi mystic. But like, I mean, do you have any? Can you shed some light on the like the the origins of his teachings at all in nobody's any particular quite, tradition? Or? Nobody's quite sure. He went to, he certainly went to an esoteric school because if you read his book, you probably haven't, Meetings with Remarkable Men, he talks about going to this special school. He doesn't say where it is because it's very, it's not exactly secret, but it's hidden. And he, that's where he learned his main teaching. But there's a lot of Sufism in the background. There's the dervishes also in the background. It's, it's, nobody mm. really knows exactly except that he went to this um, mm. esoteric school. Mm. Well, so like, you know, for, for, um, Sufism is kind of like the, um, I guess, the non-dual tradition in the, from the Islamic sort of religion. Mm -hmm. And there's some really interesting Sufi teachers around as well that I've 
read a little bit, not a lot, but has a lot of similarities. Most of those non-dual traditions have similarities with each other, obviously. Yes, yes. Um, So Gurdjieff, he moved to Europe and he he didn't settle in London, though he settled in Paris, didn't he? Yes, he he decided that the English people weren't really, they weren't really what he was looking for. He felt people in France and the French France itself was a better country to start it up from. Yeah, and this was generally in the in the twenties and thirties yes. and f- yes. and uh, forty. It was it was about late forties when he died, or nineteen forty nine. Nineteen forty nine, and he just just died of. Do you know how he died? It was natural. Nobody actually knows. He he had suffered a really bad car accident a few years before, mm. and his body was all shot up. But right. we don't know specifically mm. what he died from. So he had quite a well-known, famous community somewhere near Paris, didn't he? Yes, in Fontainebleau. Right, yeah. There's quite a few famous artists who lived there as well, wasn't there? Yes. I know Catherine Mansfield was one. Mm-hmm. Did you ever read Catherine Mansfield's? No, I've, I've, always, I've, I've meant to quite often, but I haven't. Yeah. So, um, and he, I guess so, he was fairly influential in his own way, would have influenced a lot of people back Definitely. then. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, it's sometimes referred to as the fourth way. Could you tell us what is meant by the fourth way? His um, work, the teaching. We've, talk, we've spoken before and be, about the way that we have three centres. We have the intellectual centre, the emotional centre, and the instinctive moving centre. And different things appeal to different people. There's the first way he, he's talking about is a fakir who might lie on a bed of nails to try and understand um, himself and develop himself in an inner way by controlling his body. Then the next way is the way of the monk, which is the way of the emotional way, where you learn to control your feelings and you work with your feelings. The third way is the way of the yogi who uses his mind and his intellect, and the alchemists and so on. So the fourth way, which he calls his the fourth way, it incorporates all the other three ways at the same time. Yeah. I guess one of the similarities with our tradition in terms of ordinary mind Zen is that it's, um, well, it was not a monastic tradition. So he was offering these teachings to people living in their ordinary lives, going Absolutely. about their daily life. And yes. so the work is very much situated in your everyday life, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yes. One thing, when I first began to have a look at Buddhism, there's one thing that really stood out for me that I had a an initial a bit of trouble with, we're told that there's no self. And I, I found that initially difficult because with the Gurdjieff work, you begin to develop something in yourself that makes you feel stronger and bigger, if you like, and you become like full. I don't know how else to describe it. You become aware of yourself as a wholeness. And it just seemed to me to be so contradictory to then say I have no self when I felt I had a, a bigger self, if you like. Until I realised that he, she's there. Actually, Joko Beck mentions that as well. That actually the the no self is the part of us that's, that Joseph calls our personality. We have essence and personality. Essence is what we're born with. Our innate we, our innate feelings towards this or that or against this or that. It's also to do with um, um, our upbringing, the country we're born in, all those sorts of things. The experience we've experiences we've had all go into personality. The things we've learned, like, yes, please, no, thank you, that's all part of the personality, which isn't our real self, if you like. It isn't our fundamental self. And I realised that when she says no self, it's the personality, the, what he calls false personality. Is the well, one. Can I just come in there? Like, my, my understanding is, like, when we use the term no self, we're actually referring to what, something similar to what Gurdjieff might be by self, or the real I. So when, when we were doing the meditation this morning and I was using that question, who am I, which was the kind of question that Gurdjieff would ask as well, or his students would ask, it's, it's pointing to that in a sense. Um, so when, 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 when Zen refers to no self, um, it's, um, it's kind of like making a distinction between, I guess, um, it's not the personality. The personality is, 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 is that which is impermanent all the time and changing all the time. And um, oh, I got it wrong. So the no self is actually pointing to Buddha nature, what we call Buddha nature. 
Um, Buddha nature being that non-dual, uh, if you like, when, when we're doing it subject, like the, the, like the subjective experience in meditation, um, pointing to the background um, awareness. So, so I got it back to front. Mm, that's cool. I mean, that, this is words, um, no self, self are very confusing because they're used in different contexts yes. all the time. Mm. But, but let's let's tune in on something where we can kind of like um, both. I think really very close to Joko's work. I'll just I'll give you a quote from a book. Um, it's kind of like a, a book on an, an introductory book on Gurdjieff's work, and it's called by it's called Gurdjieff: A Beginner's Guide. And in this book, it says, Gurdjieff said that there are only two things we should do every day. One is to remember ourselves and the other is to relax. One of the first things a person must learn is to observe and feel muscular tension and to be able to relax the unnecessary tension of the muscles when it is necessary. That, that fits a lot with Gurdjieff's, with, with Joko's teaching. I'm just wondering if you could say, tell us a little bit about your understanding of remembering yourself then. Well, we start off every meeting, or when we get together, we have a sitting, and during the sitting, we're taught to have a sensation of the body, every bit of your body, exactly how you're sitting now, um, every, whatever the tension is, if there is any, any, and your mannerisms, if there are any, to be aware of yourself totally. So there's an exercise to be to become aware of your in fingers, hands, toes. So if you, if you were doing that now, what would the instruction be to the people in the group? It would take a long time. Okay, can you, can you shorten it? Well, first of all, you sense the right hand, then the, then the right forearm, then the right upper arm. You go down to your right foot, sense the right foot and go up to the right leg. Then the left foot and go up the left leg. Hmm. Left hand, left arm, hmm. and then up the front of the trunk, over your head and down the back of the hmm. head. So that's you, very, very, that. very similar to the passion of practice, isn't it? And you, you do that three you, times. Yeah. You can you come across that in your Burmese, like in the Buddhism, the, the sort of body scan in the passion practice. I haven't mentioned it. Okay. Not at least not to me. Yeah, it's it's very very central to that teaching, and, and Joko used that, the, you know, being with the sensations in the body. Yeah. So that's a very important part of the practice. It's also a very important part of the work as well. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And self remembering is when you remember yourself. When you, oh, how can I explain it? It's when you divide yourself into two. There's the ordinary part of us. And I don't know if you've heard of Muji, a teacher, and he describes it this way, and I think it's quite clear. There's a, there's a tree and there's a bird. Have you heard this one? No. There's a bird on the tree and the bird is fussing around its nest. It's got a couple of, ne of nestlings in there and it, it builds the nest, makes sure the nest is firm, keeps it clear, feeds the chicks and everything. And that's how we all are. That's a sim simile for our ordinary life. But on our higher up branch, there's another bird. It's just sitting there, doing no not physically doing anything. And it's aware of the fields around and the hedges and the bushes and all the people, every action. It's also totally aware of this other bird is busy with all his local stuff and he can see and be aware of everything. Um, Self-remembering is a bit like dividing yourself and having part of you that's, well for me it's like having someone just behind me and can see into me and see exactly what's happening in all my bits and pieces so to speak. And it's a complete separation, it's a, it's a different awareness. Everything is brighter, everything is clearer, you're much more aware of, of everything. It's hard to explain, but it's it's a different state altogether. <clears throat> and if you can observe yourself from there, then you're observing yourself impartially without judging. And it's the he says, he says it's the only way to observe yourself that's really valuable. Mm. Otherwise, with that, without that, it's just noticing. Oh, I notice my hand is shaking, or I notice I'm cross my legs, and but it's not actually physically really seeing it in a true sense. And that's a core practice in the Gurdjieff work. It's also a core practice in Joko's teachings. And yes. uh, you will find uh, a chapter on the observer in the first book. Yes. And, uh, and the sense in which we... Uh, um, um, the the self-observation is something that requires effort and attention. It's, uh, and um, and, um, and that, that's... that's for many years, that's the main part of the work, just simply 
cultivating the observer or the witness and uh, and uh, starting to see all the different ways in which we might uh, have these reactions in our everyday lives um, um, so and similar in the Gurdjieff work too Gurdjieff talks about being asleep and waking up the same way as we talk about the same metaphor in Buddhism in, in Joko's work and um, same theme um, um, the uh, Gurdjieff uh, and his and his uh, students talk about identification, and uh, how does how does the you know the waking up and uh, can you say can you talk about waking up and identification because that's also similar in Joko's work. Yeah. And most of us, if we're in Gurdjieff words asleep, if say I'm looking at say I'm looking at Andrew. All my attention is going to Andrew and having a look at Andrew and talking to him. But there's nobody here, there's nobody at home. But if I'm identified with, say, I'm identified with myself and my own wishes and what's he thinking of me and, oh dear, am I doing the right thing? And am I, am I dressed right? And aware of myself all the time. So it's identification with myself, which is what we, most of us are. But if I can turn it round and put my attention on Andrew, but keep most of my attention in myself, Say I have 80% of my attention in myself and only 20% on Andrew, then I'm, more, then I'm aware. Whereas if I'm totally identified, I'm caught up in everything that's going on in me and not aware of what's going on in the other person. I don't know if that describes it well enough. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, um, in the Gurdjieff work, they might talk about internal identification, so that we might be internally identified with a mood or with anger or something he, he like that. He calls it inner considering because mm. we consider ourselves all the time. There's inner considering whereas mm. I'm thinking about myself and what other people might think of me and oh dear, did I say the wrong thing to Jill down the road yesterday and oh dear, what would she mm. think of me? It's all um, self, inner, inner considering, considering myself innerly. The opposite is externally considering, is considering the other person what they need and can I help them in any way and being compassionate and open to them still remaining an, an awareness of myself but not losing it totally in the attention either in myself or in them but between the two so it's a balance so in some ways it's kind of like the more identified we are internally the more asleep we are absolutely yeah. yes um, I mean would you like to give, I mean, I guess this thing, self-remembering, self-forgetting. So, you know, um, if we're not remembering ourselves, we forget ourselves. We're asleep. Yeah, we're asleep. We're sleeping. So there's different levels of, of awareness. And um, sometimes that can be quite dramatic and sometimes... Yes. And it's, it, I think maybe it's also possible, like some people today talk about, use the metaphor of blending in the same way as, as identification. So, you know, it could be partially blended or... Um, so like partially identified kind of thing so there may be some sort of partial uh, not totally asleep um, I mean th there may have been times in your life or my life where you know, am I just totally lost and gone and just totally taken over by the anger and you know or driving not, not aware at you start all. to drive somewhere and it's a familiar road you end up at your destination and realise you were totally asleep for the whole drive and you didn't really know how you got there Mm. But you, you, you physically did everything you needed to, like you looked in the mirror, you changed gear, you did everything you needed to, but you didn't really, weren't aware of any of that. You had thoughts going on in your head and you suddenly arrived at your destination and weren't aware of the drive at all. Mm. The other thing that I found similar uh, between the Zen Buddhism and the Gurdjieff work, I mean, there's going to be differences, but this, in Buddhism, Zen Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism, we have this thing called bodhicitta, which is the the mind awakening mind or the aspiration to awaken. And, uh, and you know, Gurdjieff talks about things like the magnetic center or moving from. And we need to talk about the multiple eyes as well. So, like you know, this this notion of multiplicity that we're not a unity, which. Um, you know, in those days, that was still fairly, fairly, fairly yeah, radical yes. and new. Um, there was, but um, and uh, so, if you could speak, Elizabeth, on the, on this notion of the multiple eyes, the lack of unity, 
and then the sense in which one needs to develop a deputy steward and then a steward and then the self kind of thing. But we all, we all, he says we all have different eyes all the, all the time and each one calls itself Elizabeth. But they're, they're all completely separate. Some of them are contrasting. There's, there's an example I could give actually of myself. Um, every morning when I get up and I go in the kitchen, there's a habit, it's just a habitual thing to look for something to eat. And I don't really need anything to eat at that particular time. Every time I go into the kitchen, well, I'm just a boil a kettle. So there's an eye in me that is habitually wants to eat when I go in the kitchen. And I might look for something to nibble. And I have a really thing, I really like a spoonful of dried milk now and then. I know it's crazy, but it's really tasty and that's, I tend to do that if I'm looking for something to nibble and there isn't anything handy. And I tell myself it's not good for me. It's not only is it putting on weight, it's just not good to eat that much milk anyway. So one eye is telling me, um, no, you really shouldn't eat it, you really shouldn't. But I go in the kitchen and that eye has gone to sleep, but the eye that wants something to eat was there, ready. And when I recognised that, I could then put my attention on the guy that didn't, didn't realise it was not good for me, and I was able to just not do it just like that. So we have our different eyes. He also, give, also gives a description of this man. Um, he gets up in the morning and he's in quite a good mood. He's had a good sleep, everything's going right for him. He, he starts to get dressed and he finds his wife hasn't ironed his shirt properly, so he gets annoyed. He gets really annoyed and gets cross with her and says, why isn't she up and riddles for another shirt that has been ironed? And that's right, so he starts getting dressed. He does his hair and accidentally drops the hairbrush, then gets irritated by that. Then he thinks of the new secretary he's got at work and how pretty she is. Suddenly he's in a good mood again. And he goes downstairs and the, and the newspaper isn't beside his breakfast table like it usually is. So once again he's annoyed. So we, he, it just shows how we fluctuate all the time during our day with the little things that annoy us and the little things that go well. Mm. They're all the different eyes that live in us and they don't see the contradictions. So, uh, but he also describes it as a house full of people without anybody in charge. There's all the servants, but there's nobody to tell them what to do. So to begin with, the idea is to try and bring what he calls a deputy steward. Somebody who could, uh, some of the eyes could maybe form together and get together and maybe have some sort of a control over all the other eyes in the house. And maybe, maybe we could, you could call it conscience, you could call it whatever just a collection of eyes, things that remember what you really want to do. And eventually, if the deputy stewards get strong enough and gets, he attracts other eyes to him that also want the same things, they all want order. They all want some order in the house, not chaos. And so gradually, the deputy stewards, the, the steward comes in and he can organise things into laying wait for the master who will come in in the end with a real eye, who will come in and be, then everyone will behave himself, be under him, so to speak. Um, I've got a quote on that. Um, <coughs> this is a quote from that um, the same book I was referring to. Um, the master is our real eye. Yes. And the whole object of the work is to establish our real eye. But first we must establish the observing eye. Um, so, in a sense, that... And I think Joker, in, in, in Zen as well, she, she talks about, in that chapter on the observing self, she'll talk about the importance of the observing I. But um, that in itself being an, an intermediate position, that eventually the observer collapses as well. And there's, in, 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 in Mahayana Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, we talk about this sense of, I guess, empty awareness. Um, and... Um, and the, the spaciousness of the empty awareness, which is not personal, not the personality. It's a kind of impersonal empty awareness, but which is also not cold, but has the ability to respond with, with love and compassion. It sounds like self-remembering. And it's very like self-remembering. That's what I, I understand as self-remembering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, I, I, I wouldn't... So that's when, when, when Buddhism says no self, it's the real eye that it's denying? No, it's referring to the real eye as in the eye of empty awareness. That's the no-self. And that's, that's the Buddha nature. So you have the... When I, who am I? Who is the other? The eye of the other is the same as the eye of 
what I'm pointing to, and that's the non-dual awareness, which in Buddhism sometimes goes by different names, but you could call it Buddha nature, or non-dual awareness, or radiance, or empty, empty awareness, all different names, nor self, that's it, that's what it's pointing to. Okay, then I've got the no self idea, got it a bit mixed up. Because I'm very, I do, as far as I'm concerned, there is a self. Yeah, so in Buddhism you can talk about the self, if you like, with the capital S, which is referring to the... The real eye, the, yeah, big, the yeah, bigger picture, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. Um, in the Eliu uh, uh, Gemio Smith, one of Joko's Dhamma, in, in his book, his first chapter, he quotes, uh, there's a quote that Joko used to use called, from the Bible, be still, know I am. The I am, referring to the the, the real I, the yeah, stillness, yes. that which doesn't move, everything else is moving. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yes. So there's a lot, of, agrees with all of that. Yeah, a lot of similarities. So I might, um, should, should we stop there and turn it over to questions? And yes. Is that okay with you? Yes, so, and yeah. uh, we can invite questions from the people here or questions from people in the Zoom land. Um, so, um, does anybody have to share something or make a comment or ask a question of Elizabeth or anything you need clarifying? I just want to ask Nam, so the observer in Charlotte Beck's work, um, is that sort of akin to the, the deputy steward? It could, you, could, you could say that, yes. Roughly yes, speaking. yes, you could okay. say that. There are some similarities, yeah. um, but like, yeah, um, the main thing is with the observer, like with the question this morning about who am I, I mean, am I a thought, am I a feeling, am I a sensation? I mean, if you were doing that inquiry, you would have, you would have had the answer to that. So, um, would you, any of you like to share about, you know, your inquiry into who am I, for example, what did you come up with? Did you realize who you were? I went up in a fairly answerless place with that. There isn't an answer. Yeah, so. Uh, I, I think this directly related to um, Nizako Kodata. You might need to come closer too. Can people on Zoom hear Gareth? Hello. You can hear him? Okay, good. Okay. His book um, is teaching, I'm not this, I'm not that, whereas the central core of all meditation, it, it lines up with everything that's being said here, because if the meditation that one uses, I'm not this and I'm not that, with every bit of reactivity, I am this, I am that, which is our minds are full of, um, it's all very well to say the words and to understand it intellectually. It's another thing to practice it and watch your mind every second playing this game of I am this, I am that. And it's quite unnerving to realise the intensity and layers of I am this and I am that that's going on all the time. In my mind, I, I, I must be alone in this, I'm sure. But, no. um, well, once, once you begin to see that, it means you are getting a little bit more awake. Mm, because mm. if you weren't awake, you wouldn't even notice it. You'd be so identified mm. with all these little eyes that you just That's wouldn't be right. aware of it. Just on that point, Elizabeth, I mean, in, in my understanding of, of, of kind of non-duality in Buddhism, like in Zen and Dzogchen, it's kind of like you know, the samsara nirvana, like in nirvana we're awake and samsara we're asleep. But it, that can shift from moment to moment. Is yes. that the same in the... Yes. Okay. Yes. So, okay. so um, it, it's, it's you know, to be permanently awake is very difficult, right? Um, even Gurdjieff had to, he, he writes how he had to struggle with his personality. Even, you know, some of the books that he wrote quite into his life, he still had, but he was aware, he was aware, so he was aware of it. But he still had to struggle with it sometimes. Uh, to correct me about this comment, um, I feel like because I'm invested in being Barath Gurglund, 
the body and all the senses of the body. Mm -hmm. It's a huge distraction from the beginningless mind, endless being that we are beyond the body. And yet because we, it seems so real while we're here, it's, we're incredibly invested in it. Mm. And it's all about separation a lot of the time. Mm. I mean, yeah, if, I mean, if, we, if we're totally identified with the body, it's problematic. Mm. But if we get the balance and, and, and experience some of the, our, you know, our true nature, then we can enjoy being embodied as well. Mm. It's a bit like um, trying to go uphill on roller skates. The life itself will always pull us back. We've always been dragging us back into our normal, habitual way of doing things. It's quite an effort to go uphill on roller skates, and it's a bit like that continual inner effort to make that. So some people don't like the word effort, but to me it is a, it's a movement, it is an effort to, be, to remember yourself, to be where you are. It's that step away from the ordinary. Elizabeth, I'm going back to what you first said when we were talking about your experience. You, <clears throat> you were saying as a 16-year-old girl, you read this book and you said you just had to have it. I'm curious as to what it was that you had to have. What was the, for you, what was the, the thing? How was it the feeling? Was it a how can you describe what it was mm -hmm. that you yeah, okay. I'll have to go back a little bit. I have an uncle, I mentioned it in my other talk. I have an uncle, or well, he's dead now. He'd been through the war and really suffered. First World War or uh, First World War, yeah. yes. And he'd been injured and he'd really suffered and he'd become this this beautiful man. As children we could trust him absolutely. Animals trusted him. He's one of these really a real gentleman, but a really strong, compassionate person. He has what Gurdjieff would describe as a high level of being. He understood something that the rest of us didn't understand, and I wanted that. Even as a little girl, I wanted to understand whatever it was that he understood. This, this something that was out of ordinary, ordinary life experiences, it was there, almost tangible, but I didn't know how to get it, how to find it. I'd ask the vicar, I used to go to church, the family would go to church quite often, and I'd ask the vicar, and I'll never forget, he said, well, when you're a bit older, you'll understand. Come back and ask me later. And I realised he didn't really understand... What, what did you how, ask the vicar? I can't remember the actual ah. words, but it's sort of like, why are we here? Okay. You know? <laughs> and, and he wouldn't answer. I think if, if, he, if only he'd realised, he could have opened up an interesting dialogue there. But he said, no, you're too young to understand, you know, come back to me later. And it was this search for this something that my uncle had. So when I read In Search of the Miraculous, I got a sense that I could find it through the, his teaching. Just by reading the first few chapters of the book, it just, it just touched me so much, I decided that's what I wanted. I had to join a group somewhere. For a number of people, I mean, they, I mean, personally for me, when I discovered Buddhism and I read a book, like you read a book. The experience I had was reading this book actually was like remembering something. Yes, that's right. Yes, it is. So I come so I knew that. <laughs> it's like, it's a process of, of remembering something you've never read before, but it's a process of, it, that's how I best describe it. It's like, I, remem I remember what this is like even though I've never experienced it before. It's a very interesting thing, and it stays with you. It stays with you. Skirchev calls it called, he talks about magnetic centre, and we, everyone here would have, would have a magnetic centre or they wouldn't be here. He says it begins, um, it's like there are two influences put onto the earth. One is put onto the earth from luck, as the influence from ordinary life, and there's the ordinary, the influence from the esoteric centre of mankind, which is a conscious influence. But they get mixed up when we get, when we come down to earth, when it comes down to this level. The thing is, as we grow up, do we discriminate between the two influences? 
if you, inter if you do become aware of the two different influences, one is on a different level to the other, something in you is touched by it, and you gradually build a magnetic centre which will attract you to that kind of idea and those kind of things. So the, and the magnetic centre gets stronger the more you feed it, so to speak, the more you get involved in things like Buddhism or Gurdjieff or whatever. And I think that's the sort of memory we have, is that magnetic centre that recognises something that it wants. Hmm. Anybody else relate to what Martin was saying about that sense of remit yet? Hmm. Hmm. I felt like someone had stolen my ideas. <laughs> I was like, this is the book I should have written. If I could just get my head together and write something down, surely this would be what I'd write. There's nothing that I could disagree with. Hmm. You know? yeah. Like, I'm sure I've thought all this, but I haven't. But I've Sure, yes, it's a, rec it's a recognition. Yes. Someone stole my book. <laughs> Anybody on Zoom wants to ask a question or make a comment? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take that up. Thank you, Andrew. Um, thank you, Elizabeth, for sharing your uh, experiences and uh, training. Um, really appreciate you uh, you sharing you sharing that with us um, and it's interesting to hear the interplay between the Gurdjieff work and the Buddhist work and um, I can't I can't but help um, channeling this stuff through uh, through um, um, my therapy training. So I, I kept thinking, ah, well, this sounds very much like what we do in, in therapy uh, by seeking to shed light on those parts of us we can't see that are unreflective, that perhaps, uh, you know, we call uh, the unconscious. So to me, there's a strong resonance between making that which we can't see of ourselves brought into the light, so shedding light on us and in our unconscious selves, which sounds like Gurdjieff's asleep sense. Um, I, do, I do have some weariness of things like uh, talking about um, we have an essence. Uh, it's a little bit like Barry's warnings against uh, kind of concretizing, concretizing some aspect of self, and maybe even Buddha nature itself, depending on how we see these things. But what I do find really uh, amusing is uh, reflecting on a, a, a long time ago reading um, Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson, which seems to point to Gurdjieff's um, Gnostic and Essene roots, perhaps, because... <laughs> you read that? Sorry? You read that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> um, I, think I, I think I actually got that book from you. <laughs> um, so, because he talks about us a bit like in The Matrix, as being um, unconsciously, we're feeding the demiurge that created everything who, who resides on the moon. Uh, that's probably, I just hear that metaphorically, but uh, the, the Essenes and others definitely saw that there was a big God above and then there's a, a, a sort of bad God that demiurge that created the world and feeds off us poor mortals. So uh, I, I wonder how all that um, accords with, with you, Elizabeth, and also Andrew. Um, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Can I just go first and then you, Elizabeth? Mm -hmm. Just on the notion of the, you know, the distinction that Gurdjieff makes between essence and personality, I think read, read that in terms of how Zen Buddhists refer to essential nature. So if, if, you know, you'll, often, you'll often hear a lot of Zen Buddhist teachers talking about essential nature, or sometimes using, even using the word essence, not, not in the sense of a thing, or something which is inherently existent, but just in the sense of um, pointing to that which is our 
true nature, self, or no self, yeah. And what was it again? Um, oh, yes. Um, Gertie, talk, <coughs> he talks a lot about the, um, about our evolution, if you like. He talks about the laws of three and the laws of seven, but there's no need to go into that right now. It's quite complicated. And he says, um, all the planets are, in, are intelligent, including the sun, including us, including the moon. They all have a certain kind of intelligence and are vibrating, if you like, at a certain rate. And our, our Earth will eventually become a sun. The moon will eventually become a planet that's like the Earth can be lived on. But while we're, when we're asleep and if we're negative, then the energy goes to feed the moon. And, if, and every time we remember ourselves, the energy goes to a higher level, a higher, finer level, more conscious level. So he, he feels, he says, we're not, we feed the energy of the moon. We're not feeding the moon, but it's atmosphere, if you like, if that makes sense. Can you, can you relate that to contemporary discussions on climate change? <laughs> <laughs> not really. Okay. I think there's a lot of contemporary discussion on raising consciousness though on the planet. Um, and I think that sort of sounds very much like what we're talking about here too, this question of having the, um, the higher thoughts about <clears throat> what connects us to everything rather than separation. Um, the fact that we are actually a part of the same thing. Um, and maybe that, that essence is something that we all share. Yes. Anyone else like to comment on the uh, who am I inquiry? Um, for example, if you just focus on the observing self, I mean, can you find the observer? No. So who are you? I mean, it's you know, it's um, it's difficult to put words to, but you can only, you can only use metaphors, really, can't you? Really, yeah. we use metaphors like in the in the in the Buddhist tradition, you, you try and use metaphors too, but ultimately it has to be that direct. You become the answer. Yeah, I thought sitting there today, I guess for that second, I thought, well, on the nail. In the wood. Like I was looking at the floor, and I felt strangely like I was just like that in that split second. And a lot of Buddhist texts use the word mind, you know, it's kind of like what we're seeing is, you know, we're seeing like a nail in the wood or the sun on the, mm. on the wood. But what we're seeing is our own mind. What we're feeling is our own mind. I suppose what I'm trying to explain, I thought I'm going to try using two words, but for, for the second when you raised, when the question came up, I just felt like, well, I was the same as everything I could see. Hmm. Yeah, you're not separate from that. Not separate, hmm. yeah. It doesn't last. Like the, the, then the mind comes in with all the things that make up the small self or whatever quite quickly. But yeah, I mean that's the other problem with language too. Sometimes we use the word mind to refer to the thinking mind. Yeah, the thinking. And sometimes mind. we use mind to refer to you know awareness, consciousness. Or yeah, the so empty the mind. mind I, I mm. Seems to me, like Gareth touched on it. It's very busy. So there's. I feel like those feelings of connected state seem to be persistent. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. So that's like in Buddhism we say, don't take refuge in your thoughts or your beliefs. Um, take refuge in, in Buddha Dharma Sangha. And um, you know, the Buddha is the one who is awakened. The Dharma is this. The multitude of, of phenomena. Uh, and uh, 
the Sangha as well. It's, um, you can see this Sangha as bringing the two together and harmonizing them. Or just simply see the Sangha as that which supports the practice, the people that support our practice. Everything else is, is, can be unreliable. Um, even a very loving, committed relationship, you know, one, one's going to die before the other. So where do we take refuge? And uh, I suppose in the Gurdjieff work, you take refuge in your real eye, in the self. Can you yes. just say a few, a few words about that? Because you're a few more years advanced than I am, Elizabeth, and so you're a little bit closer to death. So, what, how does how, how does that work in your life? Taking the, the sense of taking refuge. Or... I suppose I can talk about when my husband died. He died sudden, very suddenly from a heart attack, and it was like my whole world just changed, and I could have gone into. Grief is very real. As far as I'm concerned, grief is almost a positive emotion because it's full of love for the person or the thing or whatever it is that you've lost. But also, it, was, it would have been so easy to just go into this negative, um, feeling sorry for myself state. So, but it was a continual effort not to do that, but to remain present and to allow the grieving, because it, it, grieving's natural. So I suppose you could say I took, referent, I took refuge in in my grieving, in a way, um, it's hard to explain. It you're, was, doing, it, you're, you're doing well. Keep going. Yeah. It was just an effort, a continual effort, not to allow the the ordinary negative side and the feeling sorry for myself to take over. Mm. It was a. It had to be an actual decision to do that. Otherwise, I could have just been swamped. And. And people would come, you know, people feel are aware of what I've been through, and if they were negative, that would tend to take in, in me into negativity rather than saying, "Okay, I loved him. It's all right. He's gone, but you know, it's okay." Thank you for sharing that.